Let's open the Word of God to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I have the privilege of announcing to you, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Amen. Go ye out to meet him. If you were paying attention as Brother Newell read Matthew chapter 25, you saw that all ten virgins slumbered and slept because he tarried. But then the gospel starts to bring the timeline of God's prophecies to bear that they have expired. The timed prophecies have expired. And it's time for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. We are not left in total darkness about His coming. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the exact precise time. But we know that it is much nearer than when we believed. And it is certainly much nearer than when Paul believed as he would say in Romans 13 and verse 11. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, and our bridegroom is like no other bridegroom. Our bridegroom is King of kings and Lord of lords. Our bridegroom is the blessed and only potentate. Our bridegroom is the Word of God. Our bridegroom is the prince of the kings of the earth. Our bridegroom upholds all things by the word of his power, And He can undo all things by the word of His power as easily as He put all things together 6,000 years ago. I read to you 2 Peter chapter 3 and I'll read through verse 7. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Amen and amen. I have asked the Lord and I have sought in His Word and I wait on Him for further enlightenment as to what He wants our church to do going forward in the future to reach higher ground than we've reached before in His estimation and standards. What men have achieved is irrelevant What men think a good church to be is irrelevant. What we have seen and known in the past is irrelevant or disgusting compared to what we want to achieve in His sight. We want to be the best church that we can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. As we had our historical review, we gave thanks, much thanks, for all the things He has shown us and all the things He has delivered us from, but we want to go farther. We want to reach higher. We want the true fulfillment of spiritual religion in our church. We want to discard any man-made idea of what a church should be so that we can be closer to the pattern set forth in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the epistles of our beloved brother Paul, And what drove those people? What characterized them? 
What was their love? What was their passion? What was their interest? What were the prayers for? Where were their goals? We want to have those same goals, passions, prayers, and so forth. And the Lord's given me a list, and by His grace over the next couple of months, you're going to be hearing that list. But in His divine providence, and in His perfect wisdom, He has brought us to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, this morning, without any planning on my part. I'm not smart enough for that. But He is plenty wise enough for that. And so He's brought us to one of the things on the list. And that is that the second coming of Jesus Christ needs to be a more important, integral part of our lives, our conversation, our worship, and our church. Lord, help us to that end. For a church to advance in true spiritual religion, they need to focus in their lives on the Lord Jesus Christ's return. That is taught throughout the New Testament. We do not want to neglect that. We, right today, obviously, for reasons of time, we are closer to the Lord's coming than anyone before us. Right? I mean, that's just basic. But it's potent. If we're closer, then we should be more interested and speaking more of the second coming of the Lord than anyone before us. Lord, help us to that end. Is there any better subject needing to be repeated to stir up the pure minds of God's people than Jesus Christ's coming? There is nothing better. It's why He died was to come again for us. It was the purchase price to deliver us from a future without hope and to give us great hope in the blessed coming of the Lord Jesus. There is no knowledge nor mention outside our church of this event. The times aren't going to tell you about it. And you say, which times? It doesn't matter which times. The New York Times or any other city's times are not going to tell us about this event. But it's the most, it's the transcendent event of this planet. It far exceeds what happened 4,500 years ago in the flood. It is going to be the dissolution because this universe is going to dissolve with a great noise. Oh, what I like loud noises, but I don't think I'm going to like this loud noise in the same way. But with a great noise, it's going to dissolve and melt. And there's no one going to tell us about it outside this church. So we need to make up for it in the church. In the few hours that we have together here, and in our conversation outside the church, we need to talk about the coming of the Lord. Our brethren in the past made that a very important part of their conversation. It changed their lives. It set their priorities. And we wanted to set ours. Are you living like you should if He were to return today? What if the Lord were to come today? What if the great noise happened while we're sitting here? Are you living in light of His coming? Or are you living for yourself? Are you living for pleasure? Are you living as a foolish virgin? Yes, you took your lamps because you know vaguely that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, but you took no oil because you weren't concerned enough to be diligently prepared for His arrival. That is most Christians. That is some of you. You don't really care. Your life doesn't show it. The kingdom of heaven is not first. Christ is not first. Godliness is not first. Activity, pleasure, things are first. And we want this to change us. Our lives are winding down. I want to burn out the rest of my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever, whatever is between me and all that I can give Christ, I want Him by the power of His Spirit to squeeze that out of me. And I want the same for you. If He does not come, and I wrote some of these things to you recently, if He does not come in the next six months, He knows right now if you are living in the light of His return. If you are living like you're thinking about His return. If you're living with conversation about His return, He knows that right now. You'll give an account for it whenever He comes. 
Even if He doesn't come during your lifetime and we go to meet Him instead, He knows that we did not live as the wise virgins. Help us. We don't want to live that way. We want to live better than that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Thessalonians were examples of true conversion. They repented. They changed their religion to wait for Jesus from heaven. And they had the apostle telling them that he wasn't coming for a long time. We don't have an apostle telling us Jesus can't come for a long time. What Jesus told the Thessalonians was two big events had to come first. There had to be a great falling away, an apostasy, and then the man of sin had to be revealed. Well, he's been revealed for about 1,500 years, and the apostasy took place in the first 500 years after Christ, when the the inventions of the Roman Catholic Church were imbibed and, and taken on by that church. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, forget that for these words. Paul is speaking about this church having a reputation throughout the Roman world that wherever Paul visited, they knew about the conversion of the Thessalonians. Verse 9, For they, that is the people that Paul would meet in his travels, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. That's a wonderful verse. To wait for His Son from heaven. 2,000 years ago, they were waiting for His Son from heaven. Do I hear a skeptic? Do I hear a scoffer? Well, if they've been waiting for 2,000 years, I suppose I don't have to worry about it in my lifetime. Verse 8 is going to give us a rule of prophetic timing in 2 Peter chapter 3 that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You better be very careful in talking that way about the coming of the Lord. The Apostle Paul was plain enough with this congregation in his second epistle of what events had to take place before Jesus returned and those events have taken place. To wait for His Son from heaven. This is the character of great Christians. This is the character of great churches. This is what was spread abroad so that wherever Paul traveled, those people that he met with would tell him, we've heard about the Thessalonians. They changed their religion. They repented. They turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they're waiting for Jesus to come. And they were waiting for Jesus to come a little bit more than any other church in the New Testament because they were quitting their jobs. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 has to correct them to get back to work that he wasn't coming quite as fast as they thought he was. But that is, a, that is serious Christianity. Right. We want to be serious Christians. That means we want to think about the coming of the Lord. Notice what it says in this verse, to wait for His Son from heaven. But it also says in this verse that there is wrath to come. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, you may think that I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Because I will describe the blessing of His coming, and I will describe the curse of His coming, and both are true. But He's delivered us from the wrath to come. When Jesus comes, wrath is coming with Jesus upon the ungodly and upon those that do not believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we've been delivered from that wrath. So we wait for His coming. We want Him to come. Because He's going to deliver us out of this ugly place and put us in a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and we shall be glorified together in the light of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be in the midst of blackness, of darkness, of the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever and the smoke of their torment will ascend up into heaven forever and ever and ever. The difference between what happens to the righteous and what happens to the wicked at the coming of the Lord is overwhelming. Who in the world could bridge that chasm between what's going to happen to the wicked and what happens to the righteous? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. 
He has bridged that chasm. And He has bridged it with a bridge that no engineer could help Him with. But the infinite wisdom and prudence of God, as it is called in Ephesians chapter 1. How, How can I, by preaching the Gospel, get you to think less of your life here? I have prayed. You have prayed. We have prayed this morning. I am impotent when it comes to your hearts. He is omnipotent when it comes to your hearts. How can I get you to think less of your house for a mansion He's preparing for you somewhere else? How can I get you to think less of your pleasure here, which is just vanity and vexation of spirit, compared to the everlasting pleasure that is in heaven? How can I get you to think less of your medicine, your nutrition, your bodily exercise compared to eating the fruit of the tree of life? How can I get you to think less of some sports hero or economic hero or political hero to think of the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of Almighty God on His white horse with a name written that no man knows, called the Word of God. These people waited for His Son from heaven. When Paul is giving a testimony of what everyone knew about this church, they waited. They were looking forward. Even over, They even went overboard, wanting to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I had to preach 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 to all of us that were working too hard to turn a dollar? You know, your pastor loves all of you young men finding a transferable skill and getting out there and applying yourself with wits and energy to turn a dollar because never has it been easier in the history of the world than right now. But that is nothing in being ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember maybe 13 years ago, I preached a series of, it wasn't a very long series, of messages called the New Bible Economics. Anybody remember? Mm-hmm. The New Bible Economics. Right. Because the Bible Economics that I preached back in the late 80s about all of God's people making more money, and that's part of the Bible, It's definitely part of the Bible. He hasn't withheld anything profitable for our lives. Is inferior to the new Bible economics. And that is to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Amen. Luke chapter 16. Look at 2 Timothy 4.8. The Thessalonians waited for His coming. Paul has different terminology in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. I hope that you will trust the Lord and trust your pastor if I don't make very much progress this morning. I'm going to end on time, and I don't care if I don't make any progress except the kind of progress I've already made. I just want to put you in light of what's coming. And I want to tell you that this is how God measures our lives right now if we're foolish virgins. First of all, we need to be a virgin. We need to be part, you know, at least of His church. You know, there's some there that are going to go to hell anyway because they haven't prepared at all, showing that they don't even have a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, there's plenty that get into the church that God's going to meet and visit with the Lord Jesus Christ and say, why don't you have a wedding garment on? And I'll tell you how many words you're going to have an explanation for it. None. He was speechless. We want a church that embraces the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, looks forward to it, and speaks about it among ourselves. Paul's going to tell us, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the real source of comfort because the worst thing in this life can't be compared to the negative side of the Lord's coming. And the best things in this life can't be compared to the good things that are coming. And the time that you have to endure trouble or the time that you have to wait for something good to happen in this life can't be compared to the eternity of pleasures with Almighty God in heaven. Can't be compared. And yet, our lives look like 
this earth is better than heaven. Shame on us. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Let's start with verse 7, 6. Paul, knowing that he's about to die, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, the day of Christ's coming, the day of judgment, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. So now as we find this further description of the saints of God, where Paul says we can get a reward comparable to His, it's because we traveled the world like Paul and sowed the gospel so that we were free from the blood of all men in Asia, like the Bible says of Paul. No, because we love His appearing. Because we love His appearing. Thank you, Lord. I think we can do that, Lord. But brethren, do you, do you know what I mean when... You know what I mean when you know where you're at, but you want to be here? You want, you want to squeeze everything that's left out of your soul, out of your life, out of your energy, for the Lord's sake, to love His appearing. And that's what we're going to pray for. That's what we're going to sing for in our second assembly. And that's why we're going to have Scripture after Scripture read to you in the second assembly. We want to be like primitive saints that did not have so much. They didn't all have Bibles in their laps. But they sat there and heard the words read to them from Holy Scripture that Jesus Christ was coming and was going to deliver them out of this world of persecution, had already delivered them out of the pains of death and hell, and was going to put them in glory with Christ forever. Oh yeah, we're going to sing, I was a poor wayfaring stranger, but I'm going home. And not to meet mommy, daddy, brother, or sister. It's verse 4 that we'll work ourselves up toward. I'm going home to meet my Savior. Amen. To all them that love His appearing. Brethren, let's love His appearing. It's a choice. How can I help you? How can I help you? I'll change the emphasis in the church. How can I help you? How can I make the other things in your life less important? How can I wrestle with your mind and help your heart to get your priorities straightened out a little bit better and a little bit more distance put between the things of Christ and the things of this world. He doesn't, he doesn't care what you accomplish in this world when you meet Him. He's going to care about how much you loved His appearing. He's going to care about how much you loved Him. He's going to care about how much you loved His people and help them love His appearing. Those are the things He's going to measure you by. Right. Look over at Second Peter chapter 3. I think that's a chapter that we have something to do with today if we get to it. Second Peter chapter 3, but I want to go to verse 12 this time because we're thinking about what characterizes the true churches of Jesus Christ. And what characterizes them is that they waited for His Son from heaven. They were in expectation. They wanted Jesus Christ to come. You know, I know that every single one of you have plans for your lives. Mark your calendars of how gentle I am being right now by not telling the congregation what your plans amount to in comparison to a plan that's already been laid for you. And that is eternal glory with Christ. He's going to come to be admired by us when He splits the sky open and this universe implodes upon itself and there is a great noise, and the fires melt the heavens. For fire to melt the heavens? You say, that's going to be quite a bit of steam. I don't care what results. The fire is going to melt the heavens and dissolve the universe. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be ours. And He will own us as His before the universe. And we will admire Him. And we will glory in the glory that He's going to reveal to us. And this ought to be the theme of our lives. Can we look at our jobs as a necessary evil? And I hope that you understand how I mean that. It's a, it's a good thing. The work is good, and we should work, and we should work very hard, and we should save and be faithful and prudent in financial dealings, but all that stuff is just to make sure that we're 
secure to a degree, wise, prudent, give a good testimony before the world, and have a few coins left over to share with others who are in need. I mean, that's what the Bible says. And, and all the time we're doing it is, oh, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly Amen. and get me out of here. Until you come, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to try to take care of God's people. I want to be wise and prudent in my job. But, oh, Lord, come quickly. We, how can I help you? I'm going to try to help you, and you're going to know it. I want to turn our emphasis just a little bit to some of the things of spiritual religion that the Bible describes. I don't want, be, I don't want to be content with tables of we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's a little bit better in year 35 than we did in year 25 and better than we did in year 15. All of those things are important to me. You should know that from the last few weeks and from 35 years of knowing me. But there's something more important than that that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us all to know. And I want Him to squeeze me. I want Him to drive me. I want Him to light me up. I want Him to strengthen me with might in my inner man that the spiritual religion of the New Testament will control me in every part of my life and every part of this pulpit. Second Peter 3.12 Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. That looking for is comparable to the waiting of the Thessalonians and the hasting is comparable to the loving His appearing because this hasting here as a verb is telling you that you're doing everything. You're saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You want it to come faster. You're, you're trying to hasten it in every way that you can, though you can't hasten it at all because it's already in His own power as to when the Lord's going to return. But you are trying to hasten it by asking the Lord to come quickly and looking forward to it and preparing for it as if it's going to happen this afternoon. Shouldn't we be living right now as if He's going to come this afternoon? Is that common sense to all of you? Should we be living today as if He's going to come tomorrow? Would you pray before you went to bed tonight? Might you pop out an I love you to the Lord while you were sleeping tonight if you knew He was coming tomorrow? I think I know better than that. I think you wouldn't need any sleep tonight. You say, well, I've got to sleep, brother. I can't work every day without some sleep. I'll let you have a few hours, and so will the Lord. And I take them as well. But while we're drifting off to sleep, when we wake from sleep, when we get up in the morning, you know, let's, let's by God's grace, by God's grace and the influence of His Spirit, turn our emphasis a little bit and make it more upon the second coming of our Lord. Looking and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. But His coming brings wrath. His coming is called the day of judgment. His coming is going to dissolve and melt the universe. How can I be looking forward and hasting unto something like that? Because you've been delivered from it. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Hebrews chapter 9. We have it too good in America. I'm sorry. I am sorry that we have such a good government, such easy money policies, so many educational opportunities, so many career choices. I'm sorry for all that. I'm sorry that we build houses far bigger than we need with far too many bathrooms. I'm sorry that we have nice cars with all these buttons in them. I'm sorry for all that. It does distract us. Do you remember why it says Jeshurun kicked in the Bible? Jeshurun's a nickname for Israel because he waxed fat. We've waxed fat. We have too much stuff to entertain us. Too much stump for, for comfort and ease. We are like the city of Sodom. Do you know why God destroyed the city of Sodom along with their sodomy? For fullness of bread and idleness was in her idleness. Right. Idleness and fullness of bread. We have both of those things. We need a little bit of persecution. We need a little bit of slavery. We need a little bit of hardship. We need a little bit of deprivation. We need a little bit of hunger. We need a little bit of thirst. We need a little bit of nakedness. And then we would be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And there have been generations before us that were thankful on those grounds. But we don't have those grounds. So we've got to come into this house and basically beat each other with the truth of God's Word that you are not all right just because you're making money. Just because you live in a comfortable house. Just because you're getting a degree, you're not all right. right. Lord, help us. Do you all understand where I'm, 
This is just a little introduction to Second Peter chapter 3. The righteous will be saved. They're delivered from the wrath to come, but the wicked will be punished with eternal torment. Let me show you how the Bible tries to put it into picture language for you. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. This is used several times in the Bible for God's wrath coming upon men. And let me use this one. Let's, let's get our attention with this event. If I were to tell you that the president and the joint chiefs of staff were going to be at your house this afternoon at 4 o'clock, I don't even know how to say this because it's stupid. That's why I don't use examples. I think they're all stupid. So why are you telling us something stupid? You shouldn't have asked that. I hope you got it. Um, the president and the joint chiefs are going to be at your house this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and they're going to turn Fort Knox over to you, and that's assuming there's some gold left in Fort Knox. They're going to turn Fort Knox over to you this afternoon. You're going to be able to go buy a car. <laughs> what would you do? See, you can't even comprehend it, so why should I even talk about it? You say, it's just ridiculous. The whole thing's absurd. The president coming to see me. The joint chiefs wasting their time to come with him to see me. The gold in Fort Knox, I can't even calculate it. I wouldn't even know how to sell it. Should I, should I get a futures position to hedge myself? You know, you would, you, what would we even do with such an event like that? But do you know what's really going to happen? Right. Do you know what's really going to happen? About as soon as the Joint Chiefs being at your house at 4 o'clock this afternoon, the Lord of Glory's coming. Amen. He's coming to your house. And do you know who's coming with Him? His mighty angels. Amen. Do you know what one mighty angel looks like compared to the Joint Chiefs? Do you know how much you're going to own after He takes you? After he, everything, the universe is yours. All things are yours. First Corinthians chapter three. Do you know what's going to happen to the rest of this world? Do you know what it's like to have the president drive down? You know, what's it going to be? Is Air Force One going to land on a highway near your house? Is he going to come in his helicopter? Is it going to be his limo? How will the joint chiefs arrive and fit in your subdivision? And do you know what he's coming to your address? And he's not coming to the addresses around you. Do you know what the addresses around you are going to do? Here's what they're going to do. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That's God's illustration. I don't like mine. You can't even comprehend it. This is God's illustration of what's coming. He's going to come to your address if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and if you have obeyed His gospel. He is coming for you if you love His appearing. And all those that do not love His appearing and that do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be burned up. And they shall stand before God and give an account of their lives and judged out of the books and cast into the lake of fire where the mist of the blackness of darkness in the lake of fire will consume them forever and ever. Amen. Lord, help us. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15. That's not going to happen to us. 
Because He's delivered us from the wrath to come. If you are a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is a sincere believer? One who obeys Him in every part of his life that the gospel has reached him and told him how he ought to be living for the Lord of glory. That's a sincere believer. 1 Corinthians 15.19 tells us that if it weren't for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our religion is really bad. 1 Corinthians 15.19 If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Let's say that we are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have embraced the Lord Jesus. We've owned Him as the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior. We've been baptized in His name, and in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. We've joined a church. We've taken part of the Lord's Supper. We have Jesus Christ in this life. We are of all men most miserable because our lives are a life of self-denial if we're true Christians. True Christians live a life of self-denial. That means they're putting this, the activities of this world, the events of this world, and the goals of this world down far enough to get Christ and the kingdom of heaven first. But if we're denying ourselves and there's no more than knowing Christ in this world, we're of all men most miserable. Because Paul's argument in this chapter of the Bible is that there's a whole other world coming in which we're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. We're going to have glorified bodies. We will mock death. We will mock the grave because we'll be with Him in bodies that we can't even describe except to say that like one kernel of corn put in the ground in Iowa or some other place with real dirt, don't be offended anyone. Just smile at your pastor. Where a seed of corn is put down in black, good, rich soil, you get a 12 to 14 foot stalk with one or two ears. Each ear has 16 rows and 50 kernels on it. So you've got an increase of 800 to 1, which is a pretty big increase. 800 to 1. Plus it's 12 or 14 feet tall. You know, a good-sized cat could climb the thing and it's not going to bend and it's got a tassel on the top big enough for you to use as an umbrella. Have you ever seen one of these things? They're, they're, it's incredible. Yeah. And they get, to, they get them to pop up now just a few inches apart from the other one. And they do it year after year. And so we eat so freely in your cornflakes or your cornflakes or whatever. It depends if you're thinking about the Seventh-day Adventists or not when you eat breakfast are so easy for you to purchase. That's how different our bodies are going to be. The Lord's going to change everything. He's got to change us to make us fit for a new heavens and a new earth. And for moving around. Who knows what our new bodies are going to be like? Do you think we're going to be bothered by a wall? Jesus wasn't. You say, are we going to be like Jesus? Do you need the verse? 1 John chapter 3. <laughs> Thank you, sister. It's worth laughing over. Do you know what the woods are supposed to be doing? According to Psalm 98. Clapping their hands. We're supposed to be rejoicing. The Lord's coming to tear this place up and totally change it. Roses are going to be different than you've ever seen them before. Nothing's going to turn brown. Unless the Lord thinks that brown's pretty. And I haven't found that yet. The, the world is going to be changed. The universe is going to be changed. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, that is, if we were true Christians and truly embraced Jesus, but it only was, but it was limited to this life, it make, it's miserable. It's a miserable religion. But our life, our religion is far beyond this life. It reaches into heaven. It reaches into eternity. It's a change of everything we know. It's an improvement. And that, that word doesn't do justice to what's going to happen in the change that takes place, but it's an improvement in everything. There's no more crying. There's no more tears. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. There's no more darkness. You get to eat from the tree of life. Our first parents were kept from the tree of life by the flaming cherub that turned every direction, and we will be able to eat of it all day long. And on and on and on it goes. This is the truth of God's Word. And there's nothing outside these walls that will ever remind you of it. 
when you go outside and look at a beautiful sunny day, when you go out at night and see a beautiful moon, when you see those beautiful puffy white clouds floating by, it is hard. I told you this just a few weeks ago when we were in the first few verses of chapter 2, that there's a disconnect between our faith and what we see. And so we've got to come back in here to get our faith regrounded in God's Word. Because you get out there in the highway and all those people blowing by you listening to their terrible music out of hell and their thoughts are out of hell. And the Bible says in Psalm 10:4, God is not in all their thoughts as they blow by you and the world's just coming and going and doing whatever they want to. And every time we open the newspaper or go on the internet, we see more and more sin and evil in our country. There is an end. There is an end. And it will be dramatic. And it will exceed anything that you can even possibly imagine of what's going to happen to this world for their wickedness. And it exceeds anything that you can possibly imagine of glory for God's people. Has God ever given us taste of it before? Absolutely. He delivered His church out of Egypt and put them in the land of Canaan where He dug all their wells for them, built all the walls of their cities, had all their houses built, and their houses were furnished with several hundred years of accumulated wealth of the lands of the nations of Canaan. Their vineyards were planted and mature. They could sit down and take their ease, every man under his fig tree, drinking a glass of wine pressed from a mature vineyard, sitting in the nicest lazy boy he had ever imagined in a beautiful home built by the Canaanites. It was called a land flowing with milk and honey. What did they get to eat in Egypt that they thought was so special? Onions and leeks. And a fish head now and then. And cucumbers. Milk and honey. Did He do that for them again? when He took them out of the land of Babylon and set them up in their own place again and blessed them. And Zerubbabel built that temple. And they worshiped the Lord. And we get to read about some of those fabulous Passovers they held. The Lord blessed them. Just as little tokens. We sing a song that now in the church we have times where our souls are so affected that we're already tasting of the heavenly fields. We're already seeing the heavenly fields. We're tasting of the, of the sweetness of heaven when we're in a church service and we've prepared our hearts and minds and the singing has lifted us up in the Lord and the Word of God has spoken to our hearts and our minds have embraced the truth that's being presented and our hearts have passionately sought the Christ that we worship. I hope that all of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the mist of the blackness of darkness is waiting for you. Because there have been times, and there should be quite a few of them in your life, where you said, this is, this is wonderful the way it is. If heaven is better than this, what in the world is God going to do for me? Because to have your mind full of Christ, your heart embracing Christ, the glorious doctrines of the Gospel, which are without controversy great, flowing into your ears, the sound of God's people singing His hymns of praise. It's wonderful. Before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. But we will reach the heavenly fields because the Lord's coming for us. The difference between outcomes is so great. Glorification with Christ forever or eternity in the lake of fire. Why do we get so caught up in the events and hopes of this life when it's best and when it's worst is nothing in comparison to the best and worst of the coming of the Lord? In Matthew chapter 25, which you were able to read last evening, and the first 13 verses of which Brother Newell read to you a little while ago, did you see that there were two parables and one prophecy, all of them coming to a dramatic conclusion where there was a great difference made between the righteous and the wicked? Let us in! Lord, Lord, let us in! I know ye not. Horrible contrast between five virgins in with the Lord Jesus Christ and five held outside. The man that had five talents given to him 
And he earned five more. The man that had two talents given to him and earned two more. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Thou hast been faithful in a little. I will make thee ruler over much. Compared to a man that came and said, I knew that you were a hard God. The preacher kept telling me how terrifying you were. So I went and took my talent and buried it. And there it is for you if you want to go dig it up. Elsewhere, it's he brought it in a napkin. Cast him out. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then there's the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Go ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Two parables, one prophecy, all of Matthew 25, all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have your lamps trimmed with oil? It doesn't have a thing to do with a lamp or oil. Does that help? It means to be ready for the Lord. What does that mean? It means to be obeying Him in every part of your life. It means to be confessing your sins and loving His appearing. That's what it means. It is just a picture for you in the form of a parable. Oh, what contrast there were three times given in that chapter. When Paul had the opportunity to present the gospel, it included the terror of the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 17. And see today, I go back and forth between the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, where you're going to spend eternity, and the terror of the Lord, because that is how it is presented in the Bible. Didn't you get that from the Lord Jesus? Or are you more spiritual than the Lord Jesus? Did you read Matthew 25? Did you find in Matthew 25 that there were wise virgins and false virgin, um, foolish virgins? That there were those that turned their talents into more, and those that didn't. That there were sheep and goats. That is the way the Gospel is preached. There are fatalists that only preach the one side about the sheep. They are fatalists. They are antinomians and they are false teachers. The true gospel presents both. And at your first pass, you get the negative side, not the positive. Here's the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. He is, he is in the city of Athens, Greece, the center of learning of the world at that time. And he is brought on to Mars Hill before the philosophers there. And as he's, he wraps up his little speech this way. Verse 30 And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. You ignorant Greeks, God winked at your ignorance in times past, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day. In the which He's going to come as a big cotton candy Savior and take you to heaven where you can walk streets of gold? No, Paul didn't preach that way. Because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness. Think, Psalm 98 and verse 9, By that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. The fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and put Him at His own right hand is part of the evidence that Jesus Christ is the coming judge. And that is why the Bible says we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in Romans 14 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul. I want to preach exactly like Paul preached. I don't want to preach like any preacher you have ever enjoyed. I want to preach like Paul preached. And Paul preached both sides and Paul preached the terror of the Lord. And if you don't like the terror of the Lord, you haven't met the God of the Bible. He wants you to know the terror of the Lord. Acts chapter 24. Paul gets another opportunity with Governor Felix. Verse 24 of Acts 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. This should be interesting. What is the faith in Christ? What is Christianity? And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Paul didn't tell him about heaven. 
Paul didn't tell him about the love of God. Paul told him about righteous living, temperance, and judgment to come. Not judgment now, judgment in the great day of judgment. When we turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we find out that this is Paul's manner of preaching and how he presented. When Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost, he didn't invite them all to go to heaven with him. He said, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That was his invitation. And save yourselves from this untoward generation. Because there's going to be a great difference made in the nation of Israel. He is going to gather his wheat into his garner, and the chaff he will burn up with fire unquenchable. Oh, I'm quoting John the Baptist. That's the way John the Baptist preached. John the Baptist didn't say, there's a place called heaven, and I would like you to go there. He said, there's a place called hell, and that's where you're going. And who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Brethren, the beauty of heaven is because we've been delivered from the wrath to come. Half of the beauty is being delivered from the wrath to come. We want to preach both. And only the righteous get to hear about heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Wherefore we labor... This is the Apostle Paul and his fellow ministers. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul explains how he preaches here. He lets, he lets men know about the terror of the Lord in order to persuade them. But then if you just keep reading, since he's writing a church that he started, he gets into the reconciliation that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And the last verse, which is verse 21, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you are worried about how you can get righteous enough to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all you have to do is read a few verses longer, but I want you to know it was written to a church of the Apostle Paul. Otherwise, when he's talking to men in the street, or when he's talking to men who want to hear about Christianity, they don't get to hear about heaven. They get to hear about hell. They don't get to hear about grace. They get to hear about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. When they repent, then they get to hear about grace. Enough on that. I just want to preach the way Paul preached, and I want the balance, and I want the emphasis that the Apostle Paul had, and I hope that you want the same thing. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. You know, we love this passage of Scripture because it tells us about a certain facet of salvation that we believe is the crown jewel of our salvation, and that is our adoption as the sons of God. Paul Paul or John never spoke words like this to crowds. They wrote words like this to believers, to God's elect. Verse 1 of 1 John 3, Behold! Oh, this is going to be good. Take a look at this. The apostle tells you, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, That's adoption. This is incredible. This is mind-blowing. That God would call some of us His sons. That we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. There is a great difference between the righteous and the wicked. There is a great difference between the sons of God and the sons of the devil. Beloved, because we are beloved of God, and we are accepted to God in the Beloved, Beloved, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. God is light. God is holy. And we want to be pure like God is. Be ye therefore holy as God is holy. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, 
And that's the effect that I want it to have on you and upon me. That we will think about the coming of the Lord. That we will press down everything else in our lives. That we will lift it up. That we will reorganize our priorities a little bit to be loving the appearing of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we will purify our lives lest we be caught with our hand in the cookie jar when the Lord of glory appears. Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us. One thing high among the rest of things for us to remind each other about must be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important thing, the most important thing that I can do for you and that you can do for each other is not get anyone born again. We can't go there. Is not to get you legally justified. We can't do it. It's to prepare you for the coming of the Lord. And we can do that. We can help each other purify ourselves to be ready to meet the Lord. To be expectantly hasting for that day to come. To be thinking whether we say it out loud or not, though we should say it out loud, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and be living, meaning that, that He could come. All of our sins are confessed. We are living wide open for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that for each other. It's the most important thing we can do for each other is to remind each other of this event and help us all to prepare well for it. You will confess Jesus as Lord when He comes, but you should want to do it now because you're going to be shocked when you meet Him. But if you're doing it now, He is going to appear as your friend, your brother, the lover of your soul. You will admire Him and you will rejoice in Him in that day. And it's preparing for it. And we can do that right here, this day. This day, by the direction of the Lord, the emphasis is on this one little simple point. The Lord's coming. Let's be ready for Him. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet Him. Let's be ready. Let's change our lives. Nothing that you do in this life is going to amount to anything. In comparison, and when you meet Him and you give an account of your life to Him, we've got to work. We've got to do certain other things. But let us keep our priorities right. Okay, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3 and close. And I don't care if I got your attention a little tiny bit, then the effort's been worth it. Peter wrote two epistles. First and second Peter, and he said so in verse one. He wrote these epistles, both of them, for the same purpose, to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. What were they supposed to remember? The prophecies of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, made by the holy prophets of the Old Testament, and by the apostles of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is the first thing they should recognize? There would be scoffers that would arise that would try to say that there is no second coming. Have we had such in our church? Is there such infecting churches, conservative churches in America right now? It's called preterism. They say the resurrection is past. There is nothing in the future. Every Bible prophecy, every Bible prophecy, without exception, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Scoffers would come. One of their arguments always to defend their own lusts. Men who want to live a sin-filled, lust-filled life cannot have a second coming with a reckoning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So they have to get rid of that event. Their argument, where is the promise of His coming? You want to claim that the Old Testament prophets said He was coming? You apostles want to say that He's coming? Where is this promise? There is no evidence of any such thing since the fathers fell asleep since Abraham, Isaac and Jacob died not a thing has happened in world history anything like what you are describing and then they back up all the way to the creation nothing has changed since the creation that's verse 4 but they are ignorant willfully ignorant of a fact of history Do you know what the greatest ignorance is? The choice to be stupid. Willful 
Ignorance. They are willingly ignorant of something that the Bible declares and any geological study with an IQ above room temperature knows took place in this world. A worldwide deluge. Every nation that has oral tradition extending back just a few thousand years, they all have a record of a worldwide flood. But we don't need that because we've got the Bible. And it tells us in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 that 1656 years after creation, God drowned the planet. And so it says they are willingly ignorant that there has been a cataclysmic event that destroyed the earth in the past and it is going to happen again. The first was with water. The second is with fire. It is by the word of God that the heavens were created. It is by the word of God that the flood came and drowned everything that had the breath of life in it. And it is by the word of God that this world and universe will be dissolved and melted as we're going to read in verses 10 through 14 in the days to come. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, that is the physical planet, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, the physical universe, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, isn't that nice? And I'll close right there. The next two words are, but beloved. Because we're going to be saved out of all of it. And all of it should affect our lives by living more perfectly for the Lord and Savior Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.